now. Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And we're beginning a series of messages that I'm calling Love Stories. Love Stories. Do you have a love story? Several years ago, Taylor Swift had the chart-bursting song, Love Story. And it was her retelling of that classic Shakespearean tale of Romeo and Juliet. Maybe you know some of the words. I'm not going to sing them, but here they are. Romeo, take me somewhere we can be alone. I'll be waiting. All there's left to do is run. You'll be the prince and I'll be the princess. It's a love story. Baby, just say yes. Romeo, save me. They're trying to tell me how to feel. This love is difficult but it's real. Don't be afraid. We'll make it out of this mess. It's a love story. Baby, just say yes. That's somehow, sometimes how we feel, right? In the middle of our love stories. And you have some of those. And some of those have great and happy endings. And, and some of those have kind of difficult moments that you're still living through. The Bible's full of love stories. And it actually has a lot of tragic ones, like that tragic tale of Romeo and Juliet. And they're usually tra tragic, like in our life, because our human sinfulness gets in the middle of the relationship, and we have a desperate need for divine intervention. And so I, I want to take some time and just introduce you to some of those uh, from Scripture. Today we're going to start with the first love story, Adam and Eve. But before we get to that, I, I need to give you a disclaimer and then make a couple of statements. So first, a disclaimer. Anytime I stand and, and talk about relationships, it's important that you understand that I'm called to be a preacher of the gospel and, and, and to be a person who proclaims the good news of Christ through his word, but, but I'm a sinner saved by grace. And so there's no place that comes through more, more clearly than in my relationships and, and no relationship where that comes more clearly than in my marriage relationship. Praise the Lord, in July, Kimberly and I will celebrate 29 years of marriage. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I, th I know you thought I was just 29 years old, but um, man, as we think about that, we realize we're trophies of God's grace. And were it not for God's grace and, and us continuing to learn and grow and, and submitting to His will, not just for our lives, but for our marriage and for our family, man, we would be a mess because that's who we are in our natural self. And, and so I, I want you to understand that. Secondly, I recognize that, that there are some people, because of what has happened in relationships past or where you are in a relationship present, that when you enter into a series of teaching messages like this, man, it can feel hurtful. And, and I would just say it, that's not the intent. The, the intent is to open God's Word and, and for that to be a help and an encouragement in your life. Sometimes when we are walking through things because of the Holy Spirit of God, we, we feel conviction in our life. And, and that is a recognition that things aren't right and we want to make them right. Sometimes when we hear God's Word, we feel comfort. Right? That's why the old preacher used to pray before he preached, God, when I proclaim your word, would you uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable? I mean, there are different things that we need, but I would just challenge you, don't let the pain that you've walked through or are walking through 
cause you to miss hearing the active and living Word of God in the moment. One final thing. This time in God's Word has something for everyone. We, we would not do it if it did not. So if you're like you know, some of my children and, and you're not yet married, whatever your age, I, I promise there are things for you. I, I so wish I would have heard today's message at a younger age before I was married. And, and I, I wish I would have already shared some of these things with, with some of my children. But for those of you that are married, uh, you know, there's help for you. Like we say in our individual Christian faith, we're under construction, right? If that's true as individuals, it's got to be true in our marriage. So we can still grow regardless of where you are in that marital process. I remember the first time I taught a marriage series in this church, and uh, it got back to me because it always gets back to me. Uh, someone in one of our uh, older classes was really negative about me preaching a series on marriage, and, and they made it clear that they weren't coming. They didn't need to hear that. And I just thought, man, how short-sighted, because even, even if you've got it together, which usually the evidence for everybody else around us to see is that we don't have it together. But even if you've got it together, there are children and their grandchildren coming along behind you that could, could use the tools and the equipment that we gain from a time like this in God's Word. So uh, I encourage you um, not only to tune in, but, but I encourage you to keep showing up and, and maybe think about who in your little corner of the world could be encouraged from God's Word. Because I don't have all the answers, but I do know where to find them. And that's in the Word of God. And that's where we're going to look today in Genesis chapter 1. And we're talking about how to have a match made in heaven. I mean, isn't that what we want? If you're not married, you want that match that God designed for you. If you are married, you want your marriage to look like what God wants it to be. And sometimes we can learn from children. So there was some surveys. Maybe you can relate. Children were asked, how do you decide who to marry? And Alan, who was 10, said, you got to find someone who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports, she should like that you like sports. And she should keep the chips and dip coming. Well, don't know about that. But Kristen, age 10, said, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all the way before. And you get to find out later who you're stuck with. <laughs> well... That's kind of how we feel sometimes, maybe, isn't it? Well, so what is the right age to get married? Camille, 10 years old, says, 23 is the best age because you've known the person forever by then. Or Freddie, who's six, very wise for his age, says, no age is good to get married at. You got to be a fool to get married. <laughs> Derek is eight years old. He was asked the question, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? Here's what he said. You might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. <laughs> That's true. Or, uh, <laughs> Lori, she's eight too. She was asked, what do you think your mom and dad have in common? And she said, both of them don't want any more kids. <laughs> <laughs> what do most people do on a date? Now, this could be dangerous, but Lynette, who's eight, and, and she's a treasure here. She says, dates are for having fun, and people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something to say if you listen long enough. <laughs> Martin's 10 years old. He says, on the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. <laughs> what would you do on a first date 
that was turning sour. Now, this is important. You might want to take notes on this. Craig was nine years old. He said, I'd run home and play dead. And the next day, I'd call all the newspaper and make sure they wrote about me in the dead columns. (laughs) Is it better to be single or married? Well, Anita said, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need somebody to clean up behind them. (laughs) Well, how would you make a marriage work? Ricky's 10 years old. He said, tell your wife she looks pretty even if she looks like a truck. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 26. Now, remember what's happened. The creator of all that is created all that is, right? That's what we believe. We're people of the book. So God, our creator, created the heavens and the earth, created the fowl, the beast, the fish. And then he recognizes something's missing. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And here we see on the first page of the Bible, the introduction to the triune God. We serve a triune God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. And we're told that God is making us in their image after their likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in chapter 2, we have the more detailed version of that same creation account. Look in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then if we can go back to chapter 1 to see how God summarizes all that he's done. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold... It was very good. And there was evening and morning. And then the sixth day. Here's what I want you to understand. Our God 
the creator, the one who made you. God can take things that are not good and make them very good when we choose to live his way. And and some of you, when you look at this part of your life, the relational part of your life, it is not good. And I may not know that, or the people around you may not know that, but you know that. It's not good. It's not maybe according to the things you know that he set forth, or or maybe it's just not fulfilling, or or maybe you're in a marriage relationship, and it's been a long time, but you've you've become content with being discontent, and it's not good. And and I want to tell you, you don't have to stay that way, because our God specializes in taking that which is not good and making it very good. When we choose to live his way. So that's how we want to pray, right? That in these moments together, God would give us the courage to live his way. Wherever we are. Whatever our circumstance. For his glory. Let's pray. So Father, that's our desire. Have your way in us in these moments, so that you might have your way through us in the moments and the hours and the days to come. We want you to give us what we don't have, and we want to learn what we don't know, and we want to be made more into your image, so we recognize that's going to take your protection, even in this time that our ears and our eyes and our heart and our mind might be receptive and not distracted. So may that be so in the mighty name of Jesus. God, I pray for that person that deeply desires to be married, to have a partner. I I pray that you would impart wisdom into their life today that whether it is years that it is applied or whether it is days, Lord, that you would encourage them in that journey. And Lord, for those that are married and and they may have children or grandchildren coming along behind them, may these moments be used to, to help encourage us in our marriages to better reflect who you are and what you desire. But ultimately, God, as we will see, we have no hope of sinful people, of, of relating for a lifetime without the power of the gospel. So, Lord, help us to see the need for the good news in our marriage. And, Lord, for that person that is hearing these words and does not yet have a relationship with you, may you save them today for your glory. Change someone for eternity because we've been with you. So, Lord, it's important today. I I, I need the words I say, and even my thoughts to be pleasing to you, my strength, my redeemer, because we want the theme of this time together to be redemption. And we thank you for this. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So how do you get there? How do you have that match made in heaven? On the first pages of Genesis, we find, I think, four words that guide our marriage mentality. I want to give you those four words and then talk about them. Identity, authority, compatibility, 
and intentionality. Identity, authority, compatibility, and intentionality. Look at that first word, identity. Do you know your identity? Do you understand really who you are? Or is your identity, maybe is it tied up in that title before your name, Mr. or Mrs.? Or is your identity tied up in that title that comes behind your name, Esquire or Plumber or Teacher or whatever that may be? Is your identity tied up in your bank account? (laughs) Many of us are thinking, I sure hope not. Is your identity defined by what you drive or what you live in? You you see, spending a lot of my life around people like us, what I've recognized is we get into a lot of problems because we're putting our identity in something in a place it has no, no place being. And so on the first pages of the Bible, we're told how to find our identity. Our identity is in God. Look at verse 26 again. Then God said, let us make man how? In our image, after our likeness. You were created in the image of God. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the economic status, the nationality. None of that matters. You were created in the image of God. We call that the imago Dei. The stamp of God is on your life. And that's what gives you your identity. If you've come to that place where you began a relationship with Jesus, you're a follower of Christ, then we could even say you're not only created in the image of God, you were recreated in the image of Jesus. So your identity is in Christ. And so think about that. We say that this passage tells us that God is a triune God. In the image of God, you were created in a triune way. Think about it. You were created with a body. You were created with a spirit. And you are a soul. Your body is your physical self. Your spirit is everything else about you. Your interest, your mind, what you like, what you look to. And then your soul. Oh, you are a soul. Your soul lasts forever. And so everything about your identity is impacted by this triune creation that God made of you. And that completes you. And it's very important before we talk about relationships with someone else that you understand this principle. You are complete in God. And if you are a Christ follower, you are now complete in Christ. Now that's significant because sometimes you will hear someone say, oh, she completes me. Or he completes me. And when you do that, you've missed out on this idea of identity because the reality is God created you in such a way that you may need someone else to compliment you, to come along beside you, but you don't need another person to complete you. And and most of the challenges that come in life come because we're trying to find someone or something to complete us. And we try to meet legitimate needs and, and feelings in illegitimate ways. And we all come, always come out empty. God doesn't want you to find your identity in another person. He wants you to find your identity 
in him. And this is vitally important. Because you're not fully prepared for a relationship with another person until you understand your identity as an individual created in the image of God. So I ask again, do you know who you are? Identity. The second word is authority. The first people created were created under authority. And we see that even when it's just Adam. Adam is told of his authority. Look at verse 16. That's why I included these verses. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Whether we like it or not, we're born under authority. When you're born, you're first born under the authority of your parents. Now let's clearly acknowledge way too many parents abdicate that authority. Either in a literal sense, they walk away, or in a practical sense. They don't exercise that authority to lead and guide and bring up their children. But beyond the parent, you're born as a citizen, right? So you were born under the authority of a particular government. You don't have to like it. You may not have asked for it. That's where you were born. You were put under that authority. I'll go a step further, and I believe that God is the creator of all that is. And all of us, just like Adam, are up under his authority. And so you, you may not acknowledge him, but your existence is up under the authority of God. Now, I'm a follower of Christ, and because of that, I've looked at God's word. The Bible is authoritative. And, and so you know, that means I live up under the authority of Scripture. Now, this is important because if you don't understand this, when you go about your relationships, you'll do what? What feels good. What you want in the moment. Because you're not acknowledging the authority. And so let's, let's illustrate that in a couple of ways. You've got to decide, are you going to come up under the biblical authority? Because biblical authority says marriage has some standards. It's, it's not whether it's politically correct or not. It's just what has always been the case throughout Scripture. So marriage is a relationship between one man and one woman. And, and so that means anything outside of that context is an unbiblical marital arrangement, regardless of, of other laws and governments, and that's outside of the authority of Scripture. We even have biblical mandates that we're up under the authority of, of what the sexual, the physical relationship should look like between a man and a woman. It's that it should be between a man and a woman in marriage. And so it's not picking on any group of people or particular lifestyle. If we say homosexuality is a sin, it's not biblical. Because we're saying any, any sexual relationship outside of that biblically mandated authoritative understanding is wrong. That's why it's wrong to have an affair with another person if you're married. That's why it's wrong to have sexual relations prior to marriage. Why? Because God told us not to. And all we have to do is look at what happened here in Genesis chapter 2 to recognize when we do what God tells us not to do, it gets us in trouble. There are always consequences, right? 
And I, this is so serious, so I'm not going to ask you to respond, but I, I think most of us here that have lived a little life, if, if we were being honest, we could say, yes, man, I've made choices that are antagonistic to the authority of God, and as a result, I've had consequences that I wish I didn't have. Why? Because sin always takes me further than I want to go. Sin always costs me more than I want to pay, and sin always keeps me longer than I want to stay. There are consequences when I thumb my nose at God's authority. So in this first relationship, he set it up real clearly. Yes, there's going to be a man and a woman, but that is a covenant relationship related to God. And so when I do premarital counseling, we start by drawing a triangle on a page. And I'll tell the man and the woman that you're on either side of this triangle, but at the top of that triangle is your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the only way for you to get closer to one another is if both of you individually are pursuing that right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. If you're not doing that, you're not together. But if you're pursuing that, both of you, guess what? You draw closer together. Because that's his plan. That's his authoritative process. And failure to live according to God's word and under his authority always has devastating consequences. Listen, there may be a thrill or a pleasure in the moment, but there will always be pain and consequence that follows. So identity, authority, and then it gets real practical. Compatibility. You see, God recognized that Adam had needs. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Who said it's not good that man should be alone? The Lord God. Do you know what that means? God knew Adam's needs. You know what that means? God knows your needs. He knows these longings in your heart. He knows... Knows these desires that you have. Living a godly life or up under the authority of Scripture is not suggesting that you have to ignore the reality of real needs. It's just acknowledging that you're going to meet those needs according to His way, not according to yours. In fact, God knew the need before Adam knew the need. You know how I know that? I think that's part of Adam's project. Remember what, he, remember what we read? He said, all right, Adam, I want you to go out and name the animals. And, and I think in doing that, he was teaching Adam to lead, and he was teaching him to love. Because he goes out and he sees, uh, for example, the hippopotamus, and he says, man, that's a big, strange creature. And, but then he notices, uh, wait a second, there's two of them. And they're very similar, but I do notice some subtle differences. And then he goes and he sees the giraffe, and the giraffe is really tall. And he thinks, man, that guy has a long neck. And then he recognizes, oh, well, there's two of them. And they're very similar, but there's also some significant differences. And then he stumbles upon, finally, one that looks kind of like him, the gorilla, but they're really, really hairy. But he notices even that gorilla has a counterpart. Someone that looks similar, but different. And I think it's in that process that Adam then begins to recognize what God already knows. He has a need. 
because his needs are real. He had this longing, this desire for companionship. But everywhere he turned, it was empty. In all creation, he couldn't find another living being to meet his need. So what happened next? Don't miss this. Maybe my favorite point of this time of teaching. Verse 20. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Did you see that? The Lord God caused a deep sleep. What, what does that mean? What are you getting at, Paul? God knew the need. He helped Adam recognize the need. And then listen. Then the God who created everything that is made Adam rest in him. God, the Lord God, caused a deep sleep. God's plan for you discovering that match made in heaven, even after recognizing that need, is that you get to the point where you're willing to rest in Him. You're willing to trust Him and His timetable, in His plans, in the way that He's established this for you. In 30 years in ministry, in a Good number of years more than that in life. And I would just tell you that most of the time in any area of life where we get into trouble is when we stop resting in God. And so it looks like this in high school, you begin to recognize that a lot of the other guys and gals, they have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And, and if you are going to fit in, if, if you're going to be right, if you're going to be, listen, complete, you've always got to have a boyfriend or girlfriend. And so you see that even beginning at a high school age, don't you, that there's just a desire to always, always have somebody with me. And then as you get a little older, maybe you get into adulthood and you recognize, man, people are getting connected. People are getting matched up. And, and I'm, I'm longing. So what do you do? You force the issue. You go to singles bars or, or you put yourself in places maybe you shouldn't be because you're just desperate to have completeness. And you're forcing the issue. God caused a deep sleep. Think of what would happen if Adam would have forced the issue. He might have settled for that gorilla. <laughs> you know what I'm saying to you? Don't settle. If you're trusting God, if you understand these first two principles, that's why we began there. It's kind of broad, but it's so important. If you understand your identity is that you were created in the image of God, and there's some things you're just going to live by. You're going to live by His standards. You're going to live under His authority. If, if you're willing to let that be the foundation of your relationship, then let Him bring you someone who is compatible. Because when you find your rest in Him, God will guide you to a compatible helper. That's the way he does it and so that's the way it says it right God brought her to Adam that's why by the way when I perform a, a, a marriage ceremony the father brings the bride to the groom God the father brought Eve to Adam 
And what did Adam do? Man, immediately he began to sing, at last. I mean, that's what it says, right? That's where that song came from. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called, whoa, man. Because she was taken out of man. And where was she taken from? Not from Adam's head so that she would manipulate him. Not from Adam's foot so that he would trample over her. But from Adam's side. So that the pattern for this relationship would be hand in hand. Side by side, shoulder to shoulder for a lifetime. Let me just ask a question to all of you who are not yet married. What if our same creator is in the process of preparing that person for you? Are you willing to rest in him? Now remember I told you we were created body, spirit, soul. I I think all of those come into play with compatibility. And where you get into trouble is when you've sacrificed in one of these areas. And so, for example, body. What is body? That's my physical. And guess what? There needs to be a physical attraction. I mean, there needs to be that. There needs to be a spark. If you're going to spend the rest of your life with a person, I would hope you're physically attracted. It's kind of silly not to be. But that's not all there is. Yet for my life, that's where most relationships start. What's that next part? That spirit. That's that everything else about you. That's what your mind is like. The things you think about. The things you enjoy doing together. The way you like to spend your time. That's compatibility, right? Does it have to be there? Well, there's some cases where it's not there. But boy, it makes it tough, doesn't it? So I want somebody that I'm physically attracted to, body. I I want somebody, spirit, that that I'm compatible with in all these other areas. But then there's soul. The soul is who I am. I mean, my soul is what's going to last forever. And and so my soul is my spiritual me. So why in the world would I want to link my life up with someone who's not compatible spiritually? Why would I even consider that? Why would I settle? Say, Paul, can you make it? Can a marriage make it if you don't have all three? Yeah. And some have recognized that and they're pushing through and they're fighting through and they're trying to make the best. But boy, it's a lot more difficult. And if you only have one of the three, man, it's almost impossible. And if you don't have soul union, Man, you're really missing out. So I want to I say it again to you if you're not yet married. And to you who are raising children or are like more people than ever raising grandchildren. Every day of their lives, pray over them and speak into them. Don't you dare settle. Identity, authority, compatibility. And then finally, intentionality. (laughs) Intentionality. You know why? Because even the best marriages take work. Kimberly and I, we deeply love each other. 
And we love celebrating our union in every way. But there are hard moments because we're different and we're, we're sinful and we've had five children and, and life is busy and, and you have to work at it. And what's interesting is even in the marriage where it was a match made in heaven, the God who created all that is gave some guidelines and some guardrails for marriage. Now just think about that. This was the crown of God's creation. And he could have just sent Adam and Eve on their way. But no, he said, all right, here's some things you need to do. If you don't do this, it's going to be a mess. Here they go. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's the guidelines? What's the guardrails? Three words. Leave, cleave, weave. Right there in that simple verse, we have a principle for marriage that if you're unmarried, you want to aim for. That's your target. If you are married, you want to live for. Leave, cleave, and weave. This is so important that when Jesus was asked about marriage, you know what he commanded? Not suggested. He commanded this principle. He quoted it. And after Jesus, I guess the apostle Paul thought it was a big deal. So to the early church, he commended it. These are the guidelines, the guardrails for marriage. How do you live it out? First of all, leave. What does that mean? There comes a point when you unite your life with another person that you have to make a break with those things that are behind you. Let me illustrate those in three different ways. First of all, you have to make the break with your parents. That's your family of origin. Now, don't mishear me. Kimberly and I... We both have very close family relationships. But we enjoy that in a proper, a proper and boundaried context. You, you show me a relationship in which the par parental break has not been made, and I will show you a relationship that's in trouble. So think about this. This is so important. <laughs> That God said that even to Adam and Eve. Because he knew that they would be parents who would have to live this out. Who would have to let their children go and begin to engage in their lives. To leave their families of origin to become a new family. So you leave your parents. But not just that. There comes a point you, you leave some of your peers. At least in the way that you've known them. I, I'll do marital counseling and sometimes... The man might say, well, she gets mad because I usually go out with the guys every Thursday night. And, and she says she doesn't want me still going out with the guys. I mean, most of them are single and they're doing things they shouldn't do. And, but I want to go out with my buds. And I just have to say, are you listening? This is the person that you've united your life with. And she's saying she wants to spend time with you. Make the break. You have to leave your parents. You have to leave your peers sometimes. You have to leave your past in the past. A lot of marriage relationships get into trouble because one or both partners can never get over their past. They're reliving it constantly. You got to make the break. That's leave. Then there's cleave. Cleave is simply commitment. It's recognizing that you're in this for the long haul. 
It's Ruth, who we'll talk about later, but she said it to her mother-in-law. Don't urge me to leave you or to stop from following after you for where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and, and your God, my God. It's that kind of commitment. It's what I used to tell couples when we still had paper dictionaries. I would say, go home, open your dictionary, turn to D, find the word divorce and rip that page out. And don't ever make it a, a, a part of your conversation. Because here's what happens. You start throwing it out as kind of a veiled threat. Maybe we're just not going to make it. Maybe we should just divorce. And it begins, like, like any sinful choice, it gets easier over time to say. And then it becomes easier to do. And what's the problem? The problem is that's not God's design because you entered into a three-way covenantal relationship with him. It wasn't just you two. So you cling to one another. That principle of leaving is the law of priority. This principle of cleaving is the law of permanence. You're committing not to quit from the very beginning. But what's this weaving? Weaving is really a law of purity. Because he says, and the two become one flesh. You're not just holding on to one another, but you become one another. Now, I love it. Because when you see a couple that's been married a, a really long time, you kind of, I don't know how this works. I guess our creator just makes it happen. But you see these little couples and you think, they even look alike. How did, how did that happen? Man, I hope Kimberly never starts looking like me. I hope I, get, I hope I get the good end of that deal. But now he's saying you become one flesh. And, and it's this law of purity because for you to be one, you, you have to be pure in your relationship with one another. And so I'm just telling you from pastoring and, and from counseling a lot of years, there's some things I think you need to do if you want to have a pure marriage relationship. Uh, number one, you need to avoid being alone in, in private with a, a person of the opposite sex who's not your spouse. That's just a recipe for disaster. So stop it. Not in your car, not in your house. Not in an office. Stop it. Let me go a step further. You need to avoid being alone in public with a person of the opposite sex that's not your spouse. That means, man, a, a business lunch with just you and one other person that's not your wife or not your husband, man, that's a dangerous thing to do. It's dangerous because of the conversations you can have. It's dangerous because of the implications that it expresses to other people. But number three, avoid deeply personal conversations with a person of the opposite sex that's not your spouse. Why would you begin to talk about things that evoke those kind of emotions and bonds that really you should have just with that other person? Number four, avoid talking about your marriage to a person of the opposite sex that's not your spouse. Most of the time, when we find ourselves in, in ministry or as counselors dealing with an affair, whether it be physical or emotional, you track back the conversation and it begins something like this. Well, you know, we're just fussing at home. And the first response might just be in, innocent, just kind of comforting. 
then usually because we have an enemy who's roaming to and fro and seeking whom he may devour and he's looking for footholds in our life, he might put into someone's mind, hey, why don't you just say this? Why don't you let them know, man, I I can't imagine how anyone would treat you that way. And then it's a slippery slope that leads to sinful behavior. But the number one thing I would say to you that, man, is destroying marriages almost daily is avoid private and personal online or digital communication with a person of the opposite sex that's not your spouse. I, I think you know it because you're out in the real world. You know how many marriages have been ruined because someone connected with their high school sweetheart on Facebook? Yeah, how many affairs began because two people, maybe at work, maybe at church, yes, at church, get each other's number and start just texting each other? Then all of a sudden there's no there's no covering, there's no no light in the relationship and it goes south. What am I telling you? Not, I'm not trying to end on a rough note, I'm just telling you every relationship. Even relationships blessed by God demand our intentionality. You're not going to accidentally step into a good marriage. It takes work. But can I just tell you, it's worth the work. It's worth the work, friends. So what do you do? You apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to your marriage. The good news of Jesus, his power over death and his victory over sin, that was not just to give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. That was so that you could enjoy victory in every area of your life. So every day, wake up and pray the gospel over your marriage. Ask Jesus to bless your marriage. Makes me think of the little boy who went to Sunday school. He heard them teach about the miracle where Jesus turned the water into wine. He listened intently because he knew what would happen. He went home and it happened. His dad said, what did you learn in Sunday school? And he said, it's the miracle where Jesus turned water into wine. And he said, well, what did that mean? What did you learn? And he said, well, I think I learned if if you're going to have a marriage, you better invite Jesus. And that's what I'm saying to you, friend. God can take not good and make it very good. But you got to do it the Jesus way. Let's bow our heads together. Now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to encourage you. Um. If you've not yet got a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're missing the most important tool you need in order to have right relationships with others. I think you're destined to fail or at least have a less than desirable outcome if you try relating to others, particularly a marriage relationship, without the power of Jesus Christ. So if you've never taken that step before you start working on your marriage or you start planning your future, you need to begin a relationship with Christ. And you can do that right now. And here's how. 
You just tell Jesus you're ready. You believe that you're a sinner. You know that he died for your sin. You receive his forgiveness. And right here, right now, you trust him. Maybe you would tell him that right now. Just pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I I know I need you. I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sin. And I believe you're alive today. I receive your forgiveness. Would you please come into my life and take control? I'm ready to follow you from this moment on. Now tell him thank you. heads are still bowed and eyes closed. If you just prayed that prayer with me, I'm going to invite you in just a moment to take that card and check that box that just said, I prayed to begin that relationship with Christ. Or when you leave today, go by this table at the back that says next step. Or if you're watching online, put in the comments, hey, I prayed that prayer. It's important you let somebody know however you do that. Now, a lot of you here have that relationship with Christ, but you need his help in your marriage. And there are some things that he guided you with even as we taught his word. Something stuck out to you. Maybe there's a sin you need to confess. Maybe there's a pattern you need to change. Maybe there's a habit you need to take up. Maybe there's a commitment you need to make. Take a moment with the Lord. Do that now. So, Father, again, we say thank you. We know that our only hope is in you, Jesus. So in moments like these, when we feel helpless, we simply pray, draw us close to you. You are all we need. You are everything we need, Lord. Draw us close to you. In this moment, Lord, make us more like you. We know that'll be for our good. And we know that'll be for your glory. In the name of Jesus. Let's stand. Let's worship together.